Pharaoh's heart is hardened, which to an Egyptian audience would have been a really big deal. See, in ancient cultures, especially Egypt, the heart was thought to be the sensual organ of the body. When they mummified bodies, they actually just threw out the brain because they thought it was useless. But the heart, they thought of as the most important and sensual piece of your being. According to Egyptian mythology, whenever you died, your soul is brought to the gods in the Nile to the afterlife. Now, the afterlife is always depicted on the Nile because the crocodile god Sobek is the god of the afterlife. The gods then present the heart of the deceased to Sobek and he places it on a scale. On one side of the scale is the weight of goodness and on the other side, Sobek would place the heart. So if the heart is light, that means that he has a good heart and is invited into the afterlife. But if his heart is heavy, that meant that he was evil and he was taken into the underworld. And now the Hebrew word for hardened also means heavy. So to an Egyptian reader, he would hear the story that say that Pharaoh's heart is getting heavier and heavier as he denies the Hebrews freedom. So not only is Pharaoh evil, but he's also compromising his afterlife. So there you go. A little bit about Pharaoh's heart and heart. And that's enough today for our historical minute. Let's open in prayer tonight. Father, we thank you for a beautiful night. We thank you for just being able to come here and to dig into your word again. Especially even though we're in the midst of Exodus, there's so much wisdom that you share with us. So many words of love. So many words of, of, of just how much you'll go through for us. That you're able. That you're powerful. That there's nothing that's impossible for you. Father, let us glean these truths tonight. And let us apply them to our lives in ways that make a difference. And so we pray that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. So I'm going to start with a question tonight. The question is, what is the timeline between the first and the tenth plague? And I got the answer, I think, here, and it's maybe not very satisfactory, but it's the answer that Scripture gives. And I'll just kind of read through this part. It says, the time lapse between the first plague and the last is not revealed in Scripture. In fact, there is no information connected with the first plague to indicate when it began with reference to the calendar year. It is noted, however, that the first plague lasted for seven days and probably concluded at that point because shortly thereafter, right, frogs were able to inhabit the river which had been polluted and in which all living things had died. The seventh plague, consisting of violent storms and hail, occurred about the end of January or the early part of February as implied by the agricultural information supplied in chapter 9. This final plague apparently took place in the seventh month of the year. The seventh month of the year was renamed and established as a sacred calendar for Israel. It was given the name Abib, or Nisan, um, and became the first month of the religious year. Tishri was the seventh month and denoted the beginning of the civil calendar. And from the sparse information found in Exodus 11 and 12, it is possible to conclude that all the plagues occurred within the time period of one year, or perhaps less. So it's the official answer, probably less than a year. But it's kind of interesting. But they were just kind of spread out. This, actually, we've gone through seven plagues. And if you kind of remember where we left off, so far, due to these plagues, they have taken out most of the economy of Egypt. They have this one crop remaining. It's a late crop, right? And they're looking, for it, looking forward to it, to gather it, to use it to sell, to trade, and also to use to, for consumption. And it's the only thing left, really, in their economy that they're still holding on to. If you remember the, flag, the, the, the plague of the hail, right, destroyed the rest of the cattle, pretty much, that wasn't taken inside. It destroyed uh, the, the crops that were that they were kind of ripe at that time and ready for harvest. There was really nothing more, and they were starting to freak out. If you're an average Egyptian, your life's probably are ruined. Everything is banking 
on this last crop if you have that in your field. Your animals are gone. Everything is kind of in a bad place. And if you're an average Egyptian, you're looking at Pharaoh and you're thinking, what in the world? We're going through all this. Why? Because he won't let them worship their God. And apparently their God is powerful. And apparently their God is a little ticked off that you're not letting them worship. And he's destroying our lives. And Pharaoh's kind of losing the PR battle just a little bit here. The people are also looking at Moses' God, Israel's God, and saying, man, we need to appease him. Because that would have been the mentality of the, of the idolatrous culture that they had. How do we appease this God so that he'll stop this reign of terror on our land? Moses goes to Pharaoh again, right? And he picks up in chapter 10. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. There's a couple things here I want you to get before I go into the plague part. One of the things that you can't help but notice as you go through the Old Testament is that God's serious, right? He's serious about what he says. He's serious about you following him. He's serious about obedience. He hates sin. He hates rebellion. He punishes it all the way through. And one of the things that you gain as you look at the Old Testament is how much God doesn't like sin, how it separates us from him, how it leads to bad things in life, always consequence that's not good. And it sets up this idea of how amazing Jesus is. Because this God that hates the sin that's in our life, who hates the corruption, that hates the rebellion that we go about on a regular basis because we're sinful beings, and he sends us Jesus who wipes away that sin and restores our relationship with him and restores our hearts so that we want to follow him more in our lives. It's an incredible gift, this Jesus. We live in a culture where pretty much nothing is sin, right? I mean, it's just whatever. I mean, that's your thing. As long as you're okay and I'm okay as long as you don't tell me that I'm not okay kind of thing. But the reality is we live in a culture where there's not very much sin. And that's one of the huge problems with our culture today because if you don't believe that God is serious about sin, you don't know why you need a Savior. Does that make sense? What is he, Jesus saving me from? What do I need Jesus for in my life? I've got it together, right? Everything's going okay. I've kind of got things under control. So what do I need Jesus for? I'm not in trouble. I'm not, I didn't lose my job. Our relationship's going okay. So what do I need Jesus for? We don't even pretend that there's sin. We don't even pretend that there's things that we should feel guilty for. Although if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our lives, there's things that we're doing that are complicating our lives in pretty vicious ways. They're complicating our relationships with our spouses, with our kids, with people at work, with our neighbors. There's things that we're doing that are destroying ourselves from the inside out. And we can feel that and we even recognize that, but we don't call it sin anymore. And if we don't call it sin, we don't know why we need a Savior. So one of the things I want you to pick up is how serious God is when he asks Pharaoh to do something. What does he want Pharaoh to do? To do it. When he asks his people to do stuff, what does he want his people to do? To do it. Does he want to negotiate with us? No, he just wants us to obey. Think about it in terms of this. You love your spouse. Do anything for your spouse, right? In fact, there's things that you do in your life, right, in your relationship with your spouse that you do only because you know it makes your spouse happy. And, And the other reason is because if you don't, it makes them angry and you don't want to deal with that part of it, right? I mean, there's just those things that, right? Okay, so with God, 
We love him so much, there's things that we should just want to do because he's called us to. In a relationship, maybe though, we try to negotiate with our spouse. Ever try to do that and not doing something that they think is really important that we do? Does it ever go well? It doesn't ever go well, right? With God, it doesn't go anywhere. He says, follow me. If I wasn't God, if I wasn't omniscient, if I didn't know better, if I wasn't wiser than you, if I wasn't smarter than you, if I didn't have more power than you, if I couldn't see the beginning and the end of things and have perfect perspective in life, then maybe your issues kind of, you know, they matter. But right now, I just want to tell you, follow me. It's better for you. I love you so much. Be a, think of being a parent to your child and you knowing exactly what's going to be beneficial to your child and what's not. And so God says, follow me. That's the first thing I want you to get out of this. The second thing, you know, it, it says this. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is a resounding phrase for Moses. He says, not only do I want you to get it, but man, do I want you to teach your kids. And man, do I want (laughs) those kids to teach their kids. I want people from generation to generation to remember how much I love them. I want generation to generation to remember how much I've done for them. I want them to know that there's nothing impossible for me. I want them to know there's no lengths I won't go through to save them. I want them to know that I am their God. It's an interesting statistic. Uh, The boomer generation, um, I don't know the dates, but the boomer generation, a little bit older than me, Um, 97% of the boomer generation plus has been to church at least once in their life. That was a 15-year-old stat. It's probably higher now due to funerals and different things. 97%. Gen Xers, that's my generation, maybe a little bit younger than me as well. 47% of us have been to church at least once. Again, that's a 15-year-old stat, maybe a little bit higher now, maybe 50%. Millennial generation, this again, it was 15-year-old old stats, so it's probably a little bit different, but it was about a third. If you can look at this in perspective to a lot of things that we'll read through in scriptures about how Israel was faithful to the Lord, and then they rebelled against the Lord, and then they were faithful to the Lord, and then they rebelled against the Lord, all that kind of stuff. The boomer generation, in one generation, we lost half the people of our American society walked away from God in one generation. Half the people. Half the people didn't share with their kids how amazing God was. Half the people didn't share with them how God is able and loves them and cares for them and will do anything for them and will forgive them and will give them eternity. They just didn't share it with them. Half the people. My generation didn't do much better. We lost almost half again. It's down to a third of the people have been to church at least once. And that's not even what you would call truly grasping hold of the promises of Scripture. It just means walking through the doors. One of the most important things that you can do in this life is teach your kids about Jesus. And if you messed it with your kids, to teach your grandkids about Jesus. And if you missed it with them, to teach your great-grandkids about Jesus, right? Somewhere along the line. But here's the order that it best works. You teach your kids about Jesus. I don't care if they're 4 or 40, right? Your kids need to know Jesus because if your kids get to know Jesus, guess who's going to have a better chance? Your grandkids. And if your kids and your grandkids know Jesus, who's going to have a better chance? The kids after them. You know, there's another stat. These are all depressing stats, by the way. But if a mom takes their kids to church every single day until they're 18, but without the dad, there's only a 20% chance they'll continue going to church. Why? Because every time they get home, they see that dad isn't bought in. 
If the mom and dad go to church every day for 18 years with their kids, every Sunday for 18 years for their kids, 80% chance. The best thing that we can do for our kids is to teach them about Jesus and model that it means something to us as well. That they don't see the disconnect. That they see that God is powerful. Can you understand the disconnect that happens when we blow off God? It's not going to affect our kids. We go for years without going to church and we still say God's important. Do you see the disconnect? The best thing we can do is teach our kids about God. I'm going to encourage something. We do it with my kids, and, and they're pretty excited about it. But the reality is, I want them to know Scripture. I, it was such a formative thing for me when I was going to college. I read through the Bible for the first time, and all the stuff that I thought I knew about God, I, I didn't have a clue before I went through Scripture to see what God really was like. I thought I knew everything because I'd been to Sunday school my entire life. I knew some of the basics, but as I read through the Scriptures, I realized I had no clue how serious God was, how much God loved me, what forgiveness really meant. I had no clue until I read through the pages of Scripture. And so one of the things I do with my girls is I make them read different amounts of chapters depending on their age, but I make them read a certain amount of Scripture before they get electronics every day. Electronics is kind of a, a carrot, right? As much as kids spend on their iPads or their iPhones or whatever the deal might be, TV, you name it, they've got to spend some time with God. Worst case scenario, they leave my house having a better grip about who God is than half the people that come to church because they've read through the scriptures two or three or four times by that time. They'll know the difference between what is truth is and what truth isn't. They'll have the spirit of God working in them through God's word as they're dealing with some of the hard questions that come to them in college. They have somebody, an advocate on their side where they know truth, where they have his spirit, where they're, he's got his work and continue with them and it gives them the best chance in the world to continue to be with him for the rest of their lives. There's nothing that we can do that's more powerful than teaching them God's word. And if you haven't started yet, start today. It's a big difference. I, I can't emphasize how important this is. And some of you are like, well, that seems pretty, you know, radical. You know, I don't know if I I want to do that, let alone put that on my kids. But again, if your goal is to get them to heaven, they got to know who he is. They've got to have the spirit and his truth inside them, helping them when things go on in life. They need to know the difference between truth and error, truth and lies, especially in this culture of ours. So those are two things I want you to pick up just in that part. Okay, we're moving on. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Love that line. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Now I want you to do this. I want you to do two things. The first I want, exercise I want you to do is I want you to think of somebody in your life that is resisting God's truth and you keep watching them make a wreck of their life because of the choices they're making. Everybody got that person in mind? And you kind of wonder at some point how many basements do they have to fall through before they recognize the error of the way, before they recognize that there's a better way, that God has a better way. Everybody got that in mind? And part of the thing that you think during this time is how long will they refuse to humble themselves before God? Second exercise. I want you to think of your pet sin. Whatever it is, everybody's got one. Even you guys who are like the cream of the crop in this church, right? I mean, you guys are awesome. Everybody's got a pet sin. And I want you to think of whatever the sin that is that you're refusing to give up. And this sin is causing complication in your life, I promise you. In your relationships, 
in your wallet and whatever the different thing is. It's things that you tend to lie, cover up, do without anybody knowing. Okay, everybody's got that private sin in mind. And then I want you to hear these words. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Now remember the plagues, right? And, and this is kind of a, a truism. It, it's a, it's some truism with Ben, right? Usually God will give us a consequence in his mercy that we can learn from something. And if we blow off that consequence, just like the plagues, he gives us another bigger consequence to learn from. And if we blow off that consequence, he usually gives us, because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he wants us in heaven, because he wants to humble us so that we can receive anew his grace, right? A bigger, bigger consequence so that we might finally be humbled and come to him. How many basements do we have to fall through? Consequences do we have to face before we start taking some of this stuff in our life seriously? God, in his mercy, usually gives us one or two sins to work on at a time. God bless them. Can you imagine if we had to work on all of them? We'd be a mess. But there's usually some things he highlights for us and says, man, you need to work on this. This is destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. It's keeping you in the dark on things. It's not allowing the intimacy that you need, all these different kinds of things. And so he calls us to come before him to humble ourselves all the way through the Old Testament and new. A humble and contrite heart is a heart that God will never despise. It's a heart he loves because it's a heart that says, I messed up, God, I need your forgiveness. Contrite means I'm going to try not to do it again. And God wraps us up and says, you're forgiven, let's go, right? He'll never despise, no matter what you've done. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect. He was not squeaky clean, right? Horrible father, made some bad judgment errors in different times, right? But he always confessed, humbled himself and confessed to the Lord. And each time God forgave him and it purified his heart. That's what God calls us to do. And so here, uh, Pharaoh is not doing that, so he's calling, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Again, this is not a negotiation. God is just telling them, I'm more powerful than you. This is what you need to do. Pharaoh still thinks it's a negotiation, so on we go. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat, eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So again, I want you to just think about the plague. Covered the land all black, right? Crunch, crunch, crunch everywhere you go. In your house, in your food, just in your hair. Everywhere, it's everywhere. It's horrible plague. And what's compounding this, right, is that it's eating up the last ripe crop. You're going into full famine mode. It's taking everything. If you're an average Egyptian, you got nothing left. There's no way you can make an income for your family. If you're in that society, the Egyptian society, you're wondering where we're going to find food. Talk about government subsidy. They're going to have to go find somebody to sell them some food so that their whole people don't die. This is a bad deal. Moses is warning Pharaoh, if you don't listen, uh, you're going into the deep recession, depression. I mean, this is going to be a bad thing. I need you to hear me, Pharaoh. This is a big deal. 
And also, I want to compound that just a little bit. The whole idea of a um, locust plague was a very real thing. They actually played to a locust god so that the locusts wouldn't come. Um, there's stories, and even as recent as the 30s and 60s of the 1900s, stories of locust plagues moving through South Africa, right? And just, I mean, all over the place. Um, there was one plague in the 1930s that covered 5 million miles, essentially twice the size of the United States, over 14 years. Uh, when you have a locust plague, they said 130 million locusts per square mile, but they don't just cover one square mile. It's just this broad expanse, and they kind of move with the wind, and they eat everything in their path. And people were freaked. In the 1960s, they had all sorts of, of trucks trying to fight these things, trying to kill as many as they could. They had like over 200 trucks, over 1,000 volunteers, and didn't make a dent in the plague that was upon them. It causes famine everywhere it goes. It's hugely destructive. It was a fear of theirs, and God brought one that was worse than anything that they could have ever imagined. So Pharaoh kind of understanding this uh, risk and, and understanding what Moses was saying to some extent, says, then Pharaoh said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is in ruin? So even Pharaoh's servants at this point are like, we can't afford to lose this last crop. What are you doing, Pharaoh? I mean, I, I get the whole not wanting the servants to go. I mean, we got the most powerful army in the world. Do you think there's anywhere they can go that we can't reclaim them? What is your deal? Just let them go worship. Come on. Egypt is in ruins. If they do this, we're in real trouble. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds. We will, uh, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that's what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh's just still trying to remain, have some semblance of control on the situation, says, okay, I'll let you go. Yeah, you can go out three days. You can do that. Take all the guys you need. Go do this, this sacrifice to the Lord. Have your little party and then come back. But I, I can't let, take your wives even, but I can't let you take the kids. Because if I, I, I let you take the kids, there's really no reason for you to come back. You're just going to take off, and then we'll have to follow you and chase you down, and it's just going to be this big thing, and I just don't want to do that. Or worse, you'll escape, and, and we just won't have this slave force anymore. I can't, I can't let you do that. Again, he gets thinking this is a negotiation. He's thinking that there's actually something to control here. So he drives out Moses, and then in verse 12 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all, the, the, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land, hand, I'm sorry, over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, and the locusts came over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, that the land was darkened. Crunch, crunch. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees and all that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all of the land of Egypt. It's an interesting thing, this bargaining with God, trying to 
have some semblance of control. And I want you to see what Pharaoh was doing with each one of these things. I think we experience the same things when we're tempted, right, by, by Satan himself. And the first thing that, that Pharaoh said is, hey, why don't you guys just, you know, stay in the land? And sometimes we're, we're given that opportunity in our life. We, we don't have to change much in our life. We say, hey, you know, <laughs> I'll just use this example. God called us to date believers, right? And, but, you know, there's no believers around. And we see a little a real cute guy or whatever. And we think, hey, he'd be funny. He's really nice. He seems like he's nice to his mom and his dad. But I know I'm not supposed to date him. But if I can stay in the same country, maybe I, we can go out as friends, right? And just hang out. Maybe just, you know see where that goes, you know, kind of thing. Because there's nobody else. I mean, you, you see the rationalizations that are going on, how the temptation that you're building yourself into, but you're just kind of using it as an excuse to say, hey, everything's still okay. I've got control. Nothing possibly could go wrong. Then he says, okay, you can go into the new land. Just don't go very far. So mom and dad say, okay, you can go on a date. Just, you know, don't do anything dumb. So you go on a date. See how the temptation is increased? You're doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing, but you're just... You're trying to live in the world and with God at the same time. You're trying to follow God in the world at the same time. And ultimately, you can't follow God in the world at the same time because God says one thing and the world says another thing. Do we get that? And the more you try to straddle that fence of doing both, the more you get complicated by sin. The more you open up to falling into those paths. I mean, how do you think every affair known to man starts? Some girl starts flirting with you and you pick up on it. Well, it's just harmless flirting. What could possibly happen? And then all of a sudden, you're, you're talking over the water cooler. And, well, she's having a problem, so I guess we should, you know, it's okay to go to lunch and kind of hear out her problem. And, and then it just keeps progressing. There's a thousand lies that you have to tell yourself every step of the way to fall into an affair. An affair never happens overnight. Well, most of the time, it doesn't happen overnight. There's, and if it does, there's a thousand lies you've told yourself before that night to get in that place, Right? We have to convince ourselves that somehow sin is no longer sin. And we do that by straddling the fence, opening ourselves up to temptation over and over. And Pharaoh was doing this amazing thing. He was giving somewhat legitimate offers to Moses, right? If it was truly about going and sacrificing to your God, I mean, come on. You know I can't let you go. I'm letting all the guys go. Right? Take your wives. Have a, make a date of it. I mean, just go and, and your kids will be safe here. We'll put some nannies over them. You know, the guards, they're, they're good at you know, that you know, kind of thing. But, you know, we'll take care of them. It's okay. And if it was truly about that, you can see how some church leaders would say, you know, that's pretty good. I'll give you an example of that right now. The Catholic Church made a deal with uh, China, government of China, to have a church there. And to, first time ever, it was landmark kind of thing. And the church has, it was a kind of a, a bad agreement that the Catholic Church made because what they were saying is that we just want to have a presence here so that we can do business as a church, you know? And hey, if they need to, to worship the government a little bit more than they worship God, that's probably okay just a little bit. Just interestingly, yesterday, uh, the Catholic Church in China went out and pledged an oath to the government of China which generally isn't the best way to determine theology because you're saying something is more important than God. But it was an opportunity for the Catholic Church, right, to get into China. Couldn't they do a lot of good if they get in? And certainly they're just asking them to kind of abide by certain rules over here, but can't we do a lot of good? Can you see the rationalizations that could happen that could make you think that maybe that was okay? 
And so over and over, Pharaoh would offer these deals, but the reality is that God said something different. When you come before God and God says in his word, don't do this or go do this, again, it's not a negotiation with God, whether we understand it or not. God is saying, I created you. I know how you work. You're amazing, and I love you, and I want to protect you, and so I call you to follow me. It's not a negotiation. It's not saying, well, you know, you do what you want to do, and it's cool. It's, it's follow me. If it was wrong 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, whatever, it was still wrong today. If it's right 6,000 years ago, it's still right today. God does not change and when we look at his word, it's not a negotiation. I know today we have all sorts of churches out there saying, well, we just want to pick and choose what, what, you know, what Scripture says. We don't like what it says, so we're going to rationalize it away. We're going to say it's contextual to that time. If you ever heard that argument, which is bogus, an argument, but it's a wonderful argument for people who don't know Scripture or don't know history. But it's, it's, they'll contextualize it away. They'll take parts out of Scripture. They'll ram things together that don't belong. They'll just focus on one thing. God is love. It's true, God is love, but he's also justice and he's also truth. He also is serious about sin, serious about saving us. And so it's an interesting thing when we come to God and God says, follow me, guys. It is the best thing in the world that you can do in life is follow me because it ensures in so many ways your eternity with me. So Pharaoh comes again and he offers this amazing deal and it wasn't good enough. And so Moses left, is driven out, and the whole land is covered with, with bugs. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant on the field through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh, realizing what he had done, hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and sinned against you. Pharaoh had no awareness that he had crossed a line with Moses' God. Now therefore forgive my sin, an actual sign of some kind of repentance. Please only this once and plead for the Lord your God to remove this death from me. Damage had been done, but... Moses said, okay, and he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. I don't know what was going through Pharaoh's mind, whether he thought what else could he destroy at this point. He's taken everything. But for whatever reason, he just couldn't grasp letting them go. And you could just see the mind of a politician working, well, we've lost our economy. We can't lose our workforce too. I mean, he's just, I don't want to be known as the Pharaoh that let all these guys go and, and crippling this amazing country that we have. I've got a question here. It says, if some Egyptians began to believe in God and then ended up being complete believers in God during the plagues, would they have still had the consequences of the plagues or would they have had tried to go live where the Israelites lived in order to get away from the plagues? Well, if you believe that God was true to his promises, as he had been every single time he's promised stuff, there were certainly people that began to revere Moses as God, came to faith in God. There's evidence of a whole bunch of extra people coming with Israel when they fled the, to the promised land. But just wisdom would dictate, especially if you lost everything, man, another one's coming, let's go to Goshen, right? Let's go hang out with the Israelites because there they won't have the bugs, right? There we won't be harassed nonstop by this. We'll still lose everything in our farm. I mean, that's probably toast, but, but the rest of it, maybe we can take some, some you know, some, uh, some livestock with us or whatever, you know, save what's left. I mean, I would be going there. 
But yeah, it's an interesting, the scripture doesn't really talk about that, but I certainly, or gone to a different country for, let's go visit Uncle Phil, you know, he lives over across and wherever, let's go visit him this week. Um, but the Lord hardened, again, I'll come back to this, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and he did not let people, the people of Israel go. I take you back to that friend of yours um, that keeps falling through the, the floors, right? And you wonder how bad does life have to get before you recognize that what you're doing is, is destroying you? And what, what do you have to do to recognize that God's still here for you, that he loves you? Why do you keep resisting going back to church? Why do you keep resisting going back to God? How many things have to keep going wrong in your life? And that's what you could ask of Pharaoh. How long, Pharaoh, are you going to harden your heart? His, his own people were like, you're killing me with this. What are you doing? People, if you have a friend like this or you know somebody like this, maybe you've even shared that with them. You're killing me. What are you doing? There's a better way. You're pleading with them to change their behavior, to turn back to a different way. And then, you know, maybe look at yourselves too. How many times do you have to get caught? How many hard conversations do you have to have? How many awkward times do you have to have because you've been lying or you've been hiding things or whatever the deal might be? I mean, how long does it have to continue that you keep complicating your life before you just say enough? Where you turn from the sin and just repent and try never to do it again. Where you build in some accountability to your life so that you don't keep falling into the same thing over and over. How long? Maybe you're like Pharaoh and say, well, what, how, how much worse could it possibly get? I've, I've watched guys that won't turn from their sin and they get divorced. And they're like, well, why change now? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, because it's destroying your life still, right? It's time to change. How, I mean, it can't always get worse. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your, your hand toward heaven and that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Also recognize the most powerful God in Egypt was the, was the God Ra, which is the sun God. There's a lot of gods associated with the sun, actually, but, but Ra was the most powerful. Uh, Phra, where they get Pharaoh from, was actually a name for Ra himself, the sun God. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did they rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. I'll give you a, I want you to try to imagine the darkest place you've ever been. I, was, I don't know if you've uh, ever hiked Half Dome in, in California. And I forget which national park that was. Uh, Yosemite, I think. Anyway, we went to college. We went up. And of course, we're in college. And we're, we're pretty smart, but not real smart yet. So we decided to hike this thing up and down in one day. But, you know, we rolled out of bed the crack of, you know, 9, 30, 10. And we thought, oh, that's good. We'll get up there, you know, probably by lunch. And so anyway, we start this hike and we go up the mountain. And it's awesome and it's beautiful and it's a cool thing. And if you've ever been on hike, uh, Half Dome, you kind of got to pull yourself up right at the, at the last piece up onto this rock. And then you look over everything. And we did. We got up to lunchtime, you know, around 3 o'clock. So it was there. We were eating lunch. And we kind of taken in the view and it was awesome. And then we're like, hey let's go back down and so we did and we headed back down and we got about halfway down maybe even maybe even two-thirds of the way down it's getting pretty dark and there's some cliffs you know in parts of that walk and there's you know some unsafe places but it's getting darker and darker and, and pretty soon you know we're about a quarter away from the the bottom of camp and, and we can't see a thing and we're smart, again, I said, but not, you know, real smart because none of us brought a flashlight, you know, that would have really been helpful at that point in time. And so we're just, you know, 
hey, so maybe we should sleep here, you know? And, and then, you know, one of the guys is telling, like, bear stories, and so we had girls there, too, and so we weren't spending the night. We were going to try to figure out this last piece, and, but nobody was moving because we didn't want to fall down, like some cliff or something, and there was a real danger of that. So anyway, we sat there, and all of a sudden, in the distance, we saw this little bobbin light kind of you know, and we got closer and closer. We're like, what is that? And then it's flashlight. It's like one of these little flashlights like this. But somebody was dumber than us because they were further up the mountain, right? But they had a flashlight, which made them immensely smarter than us. So we're like, hey, we'll just follow him, right? And so it's coming down and he passes us and he says, yeah, just get in line. And we're like, what are you talking about? So this one guy with this little flashlight, imagine this, right? There were 17 people behind him. <laughs> all going like this down this mountain. He added the eight of us. There's now 25 people behind him. We must have added 25 more by the time we got to the bottom. But it's because it was so dark you couldn't see. It was a darkness that could be felt. There was no moon in the sky. There was nothing. Raz, your sun god, most powerful god that you got. Maybe you've been holding out hope that he can defeat the god of Moses. I don't know. <laughs> but the ninth plague, as if he hasn't destroyed everything, he destroys the whole religious culture of the Egyptians by saying, no God that you have is more powerful than me. That got their attention. So we're going to pick up, I just noticed the time, we're going to pick up with that next week, with this next plague that's, uh, this is the plague of darkness. And we'll go with that and then into the final plague that kind of changes all the, kind of the whole scope of different things. It's that, it's that experience in your friend's life that finally brings him to his knees and makes him look for something different. Um, it's that experience in your life that finally prompts the change. It's the change in Pharaoh's life that finally gets his attention enough to obey. And so I encourage you with that and let's uh, go to our God in prayer. God, we love you so much. Um, and we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for just again reminding us that there's nothing that's impossible for you. I don't care what our struggle is in life right now, what problem that we're facing. There's nothing that's impossible for you. And, and things can look dire and they can look hopeless just like they look like for the Israelites. But you are a God that can change the calculus of everything. In your power is the ability to change situations completely, to reconcile people that you thought you couldn't reconcile with, to fix problems, to overcome issues. You are a God of possibility. And you love us. And you're for us. So much is that true that you sent your son Jesus to die for us and then rise again so that we could be forgiven and have life in you, that our relationship with you could be fixed and we could be forever with you in heaven. So Father, we thank you for reminding us today that you are able we thank you for reminding us of your love. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.